Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva Podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Today's guest is Jay Hadland. Jay is an executive managing director at Cushman and Wakefield. He specializes in industrial leasing in the San Francisco East Bay. Jay and I have known each other for a really long time. He's got a lot of great insights into the industrial commercial leasing sector, and I know you're gonna learn a lot. Enjoy. I'm Jay Hagland. Uh, I'm with Cushman and Wakefield. I've been working industrial for about 35 years, and I work in the San Francisco East Bay, sort of from Richmond down to Fremont, the 880 corridor. We've got about 85 million square feet of product. So, you know, you, you always think you're, you know, in your world, you know, it's a big deal. And then you get on these national calls with some of the institutional players like a prologist and they've got people from all over and you realize, you know, between New Jersey, the Inland Empire and all these other places, like, God, we're pretty small actually over here, but uh, yeah. Do you represent mostly landlords or tenants or a combination of both? So a combination of both. Uh, I've always been a little bit of 50-50. We represent um, probably two of the largest parks in the East Bay with Invesco and UBS. Uh, mm-hmm. obviously Invesco that you know well, and um, uh, those parks are all close to a million to each, and then a number of users, uh, yeah, a lot of local users, a few national users, including Macy's. Nice, nice. So obviously we've all been through and maybe are still going through <laughs> COVID. Uh, a little hard to tell if it's we're just learning to manage and live with it, I guess, at this point, it's never really going to be over. Yeah. Um, before the pandemic, you know, it was a very exciting time in office. And, you know, we were just churning deals right and left. What was it like right before the pandemic in your sector for industrial? Well, it was red hot. Um, yeah. yeah, it was get something up for sale or lease, multiple offers, Um and on the sales side, you know, everything you put out there, the the institutional buyers had all sort of revised their acquisition strategy. So even small little one and two acre parcels that the bigger players would never touch, they were all aggressively chasing. So the users really almost got knocked or getting kind of eliminated from our market because wow. institutional people wanted everything and they were right. They were, you know, they used to always be price-wise below the users. And, you know, towards this, towards the start of the pandemic, they were priced, you know, with or above users and then would obviously outperform them in time every time, you know, in, 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 uh, just an acquisition timeline every time. So they were, they were formidable and, and tough to compete with. Right. So then we had the pandemic, a couple of years of big disruption yeah. in many, many areas, but it seemed like industrial 
kind of got a boost. It was already red hot, you're saying, but what was your yeah. experience of of the impact of the pandemic yeah, 2020, 2021 on industrial? And those, so those, let's just say the initial six months, and I don't even know if yeah. it was six months, my memory doesn't go back that far, Joanne, but <laughs> yeah. So let's say the initial phase of pandemic panic, you know, our first pandemic we've ever been in. Right. And, and so we were, I think we all assumed it was going to be bad for a while. And so a few deals were cut more aggressively than they should have been. And that was also the time, I think, when landlords were receiving the rent relief requests from tenants. Right. And I don't know that a lot of landlords gave them. Or if they did, it was sure, we'll give you three months, but you're going to pay it on the back end sort of thing, or you're going to pay or you're going to reimburse us by year end. So there right. was just a, a deferral. Lot of, yeah, not a lot of give on the landlord side. So the initial deals, I think maybe we left a little on the table. And then all of a sudden, I think we came to the conclusion that, wow, you know, our activity is not slowing. And maybe that was last mile, certainly. Uh, one of the big e-commerce companies that we're all aware of uh, was gobbling up everything right. uh, in our market, probably along with everybody else's. So uh, it, it was probably, I don't know, six, nine months when we realized, you know, this is not impacting us at all. And we're right. just as strong. Now, right. clearly there were certain industrial users, clients of mine, or some that we saw in the park that, that were, were struck that had legitimate struggles. And I don't, I don't want to minimize that because they were, uh, right. but a large percentage were not because they were, um, what was the terminology? They were essential businesses. Right. Yeah. So they were not, they, they could still operate as they had before. And of course the difference in industrial um, as compared to office, although a lot of industrial might have a small portion of office is it is by definition spread out. You've yes. got a warehouse or a distribution center or whatever. It's not people dense. Correct. Correct. Uh, so, yeah, so the pandemic uh, compared to our retail and office brothers and sisters, yeah, we were we were busy throughout. There was no slowdown. Um, felt very fortunate. And um, we're, you know, right now, it seems like in the office world, it's dead. Yeah. Uh, and And maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but and I don't track retail. But on industrial, we're still busy. I mean, even with the interest rate hikes, we're getting multiple yeah. offers on deals. Now, the I, I would say this. I think the institutional players are recalibrating. You know, our land, as an example, our land values overnight, they went from 50 to 60 to 80. And then they wow. kind of biked at $100 a square foot. And <laughs> even, you know, maybe peaked over that. And then they quickly have dropped back down to like, 60, you know, 60, 65, right. maybe 70 for a premier parcel, but they right. have dropped like a rock because right. that's, but our lease rates have not. Right. So our sort of a, a market adjustment, an appropriate market adjustment there. Yeah, I think though, yeah, I think so. So, so the land values drop back down. Those interest rates really have an impact on those land values. And, right. but the lease rates, were, they're not going up. That's for sure. But they are, they're kind of flatlining, it appears. Right. So are, would you characterize it as a pro-landlord market in terms of the leasing? Uh, what I would 
So let's just say through the pandemic, it was 100% in the landlord's court. I, I would say today, still landlord, but I think tenants are a just feel a little more empowered to push back. During the right. pandemic, it was, okay, do whatever you're going to do to me. Sure, I know I have to sign it. Right. Uh, and, you know, that, that was during that, during that period, that was also a little tough because, you know, these people, have, a lot of them have struggled and you didn't want to, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to put your foot on their throat, but the, right. inst the institutions wanted top rent, whatever that happened to be. So, that, right. you know, that was a struggle to try to sort of uh, work with everybody to make it a win-win. But right. today, it seems like uh, the tenants have feel a little more empowered just to push back a little bit. They're not they're not asking for anything ridiculous. Maybe it's an extra month of free rent. Maybe it's a little more TI. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe the landlord wants the lease date to start in two weeks and the tenant's pushing it out a little bit, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not 100% landlord. You know, maybe it's 70, 30, but mm -hmm. the, ten the tenants do see a few dark clouds on the horizon. And I think that's what's emboldening them to be a hair more aggressive on the negotiation. Right, right, right. So when you're advising tenants, a lot of uh, what we're talking about in the podcast are letters of intent, yeah. letter of intent stage, and things that people should be aware of in terms of uh, being cautious at the letter of intent stage. Sometimes, as you know, people are in a rush. They whip through the letter of intent without yeah. thinking through a lot of issues. The first issue, I always like to make sure that the client understands from the tenant side is lease economics. So you want to describe the typical lease economics in an industrial setting. So you, you've got your base rent, and then the way common area maintenance is a little different than you see in an office lease. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our, our common area maintenance, you've got your share of property taxes and insurance, and then the maintenance charges. And, and so, you know, the tenant and the industrial, don't they take on a lot more maintenance responsibility than in an office? They Well, and again, I can't speak to the office side, but they do. They do. Yeah. So if there's big ticket items, now the good news is if there's big ticket items like a roof, generally the landlord is taking care of replacement, but amortizing that over a useful life. So, you know, if there's three years left on a lease and and maybe they amortize the roof, a brand new roof over 10 or 15 years, you know, that tenant's only picking up a, a picking up a small increase. It's not right. going to kill them. Right. Uh, I have not, I've not seen any landlord try to get a roof reimbursed in one year because that's, that's not going to work. And right. I, I handle a lot of larger multi-tenant buildings. So then you're paying your pro rata share. Uh, and then these larger parks, you know, our OPEX have not changed much. If, the, you know, if there's a sale, they spike up. That's where right. credits get Prop burned. 13 adjustment on the taxes. Yeah, but you know what? No landlord, I, you can't get that. In, in, a, in a strong landlord market, and we're still there, a tenant can't get that protection. So they're going to pay the increase. And and that has been, that has been tough for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, Do you the see much negotiation on that, not in terms of getting Prop 13 protection, but in terms of like spacing out the payment? Because as we know, there's always a lag in the readjustment from the um, appraiser 
um, from the county. And all of a sudden the landlord gets a bill and you know, $300,000 increase in taxes. And yeah. the landlord just wants to hand, okay, tenant, your pro rata share is one third. Give me $100,000 today. Do you well, see tenants yeah. going, okay, I'll pay it in 12 monthly installments. I mean, that's that's a big hit to take. Well, and generally what we're seeing, Joanne, is they're going to take the tenant share and that's going to be spread over on and monthly payments with the OPEX. Okay. So that helps. And then, yeah, they, they do try to ease them in, into it. Um, and, and certain parks, like the ones I handle, I've handled for 25 years and there's, there, there hasn't been a change of ownership. Wow. Uh, that's going to hurt when it happens. Yeah. But, but I'm not anticipating that happening, but right. some of the smaller buildings for sure. Um, yeah. uh, it, and there's no, there's no way of getting around it. it it's, it's a painful increase. Right. Short, short of that, the re-roof, you can spread that out over 10, 15 years. That's not a big right. deal. HVAC. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't think it's bad. It's, it's the sale of an asset and the smaller non-institutional owners are more likely to give that one to you, the prop 13 protection, which, you know, I don't know if your viewers are just California. I don't know. If, yeah. Just California. Yeah. So protecting that is huge if you can do it, but boy, does that, does that hurt your value when you sell? Right, right, right. It has a downward pressure, obviously, because the yeah. new owner is not going to be able to pass that on to tenants. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, as far as the LOI, you know, if you understand the economics uh, and you can, uh, you know, maybe work some early occupancy and free rent in there, the TI package, uh, getting that TI package, you know, if you can, I mean, if I'm representing the tenant, if I can get a fixed option, uh, right. that's great. Most landlords, well, in a, in a good market, would never give that right? because that's usually always bites them in the rear. But <laughs> if you can get that in a, a, in a softer market, for sure. I mean, that, that pays huge dividends. Right, right, right. Exactly. So you mentioned TI allowance. So with your, and I know there's not necessarily a typical end user in industrial, but say the warehouse distribution center type situation, um, they have some specialty TIs like racking systems. They might have fire life safety particulars depending on how high the racking system is. Yeah. What are the typical things you have to talk to a tenant about at the letter of intent stage regarding the due diligence for the condition of the premises and for being able to use it for what they need to use it for? Well, yeah, uh, because we have seen tenants try to get in and then the exiting is not, you know, the exiting was set up for someone's racking that came down. So the, whether it's the exiting or new codes that require uh, man doors every hundred, you know, hundred feet, I think it's hundred feet. I'm embarrassed to say hundred feet, hundred yards, but I mean, there are a number of things that all of a sudden a new tenant gets in there. And I think it really comes down to, uh, if it's an accept, if the use is accepted, trying to get the landlord to do those improvements, uh, and the, I, usually the only way they'll agree with that would be if if the use is accepted and it's not, they're not these are not requirements that the fire department or the city are putting onto the tenant because something specific that they're doing. 
Right. Uh, so I had an example once where it was a tire company and the tire company had certain racking requirements and yeah. that because of the nature of what was being stored, rubber tires, yeah. that triggered specific improvements that had to be made. Yeah. And so the landlord's argument was that's your particular use that is if, if you were storing, you know, gallons of mayonnaise, that's not something we would have to worry about. And I think you're right. And and anytime I have a user with tires, with plastics, and the tire users generally all know that they need ESFR. And but I I always have an email, you know, have you talked to the city to make sure that you're not going to need in racks to make sure, you know, we're looking at a building that's 28 foot ceiling. And I know you're right. waiting to get that clear height, but do you know with your product that you can go? So have you worked with the city? and your, your racking consultant to make sure you can utilize what you think you're getting. Right. And, and um, you know, the fear there with the, with the cities, the, the national companies have it pretty dialed in. The right. companies that are more regional, maybe they haven't done it enough. And, and one of the problems when you deal, you know, we're in the San Francisco Bay Area and I can't imagine many, many places tougher than this. And the problem is if you ask, you get a laundry list of a hundred things you need to do. And, and therein lies the sort of the fine walk that you have to do because nobody's going to do all hundred things. Right. So uh, the unsophisticated, uh, you know, sometimes people just move in uh, and they never, they never get penalized for it. And then sometimes people try to do everything by the book and, and it just becomes uh, impossible to meet right. all the city's criteria that they throw at you. Right. It's, right. It's, it's a balancing act, but yeah, you have to do that because there's nothing worse than a building a tenant can't occupy because when that happens, somebody's getting sued. It's usually the broker. I mean, I think this is an area where people tend to think of industrial as being kind of super easy because it's just big boxes, oh, big rectangles. Yeah. But actually, you have to know a lot about your end users' requirements in order to serve them properly. I mean, the other um, experiences that I've had are with the grocery stores, and they have to install these refrigeration units, which are these built-in, temperature-controlled, and there's all sorts of rules about how that happens and when it can happen. And then, of course, when they leave, the landlord's going to say, you got to pull all that yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't want these uh, refrigerators left behind. Yeah. Well, I, every deal that we do, I got to say, I, I, I'm always nervous because the cities are just good at throwing stuff out there. And, and oftentimes we have to set up a code compliance meeting with the city. And those are helpful. Those are helpful. But, um, you this know. This is at the letter of intent stage, right? This is before the yeah. lease is signed. This is before the lease is signed and you're getting traction from the landlord. They know that they, you know, that they want your deal. And right. so a code compliance meeting with the city can be helpful. And, and that's where I think also advising your client that like in our market right now, a brand new building might be a dollar 45 triple net on a monthly basis. And a, and when you and I worked together years ago, good, B plus A minus space. That might be a dollar twenty. And then there's the, you know, instead of B plus A minus space, there's the, you know, B minus space at 
older outdated sprinkler system. Right. Loading's not great, a lot of columns, um, and, and maybe there's 80, a lot of ADA issues. And that's where you have to tell your client, yes, there's a reason they're at 90 cents a foot. Right. Because there's a chance. So the landlord's going to try to put that all on you, tenant. Yeah, Unlike in other areas, the, the landlord and industrial is going to try and say, you tenant have to do all the ADA stuff. I'm and, not going to worry about that. And when you put in your racks and put in your in racks, all of a sudden that might trigger ADA everywhere. So there's a reason this building's priced the way it is. So just be right. aware of that, that there might be some hidden costs involved. Right. Right. And to figure out how to allocate the risk. Yeah. You know, how much of that is on the tenant? How much of that is on the landlord? Exactly. Because that can be very, very significant. And 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 I got to say, for, for me, as I've gotten older, maybe as I was younger and clients would say, put the lease together and you didn't know any better. So you put the lease together. At this stage, I will, you know, I force all my clients, you have to have a real estate attorney because you just want someone to, to your point, reading that language, advising the client, you know, if anything is triggered here, it's all on you or right. whatever the case may be. Because and people are often surprised about that in industrial if they're not sophisticated and haven't done a lot of industrial deals, that the tenant is somehow getting stuck with ADA. And I remember back in the day when we worked together, I used to always say to the tenant, you know, this is the market condition that the landlord expects that the tenant is going to pick up that cost. It's well, just part why, of the cost of the deal. Yeah. And that's why a lot of landlords, I mean, the, the landlords that I work with, they don't touch the office. It's paint and carpet, nothing else, because right. they don't want to trigger everything else. Right. So they have been getting by doing this for literally three decades. <laughs> I was going to say decades. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you you raised the issue about the lease. So um, I have become in the intervening years since we've worked together a little bit of a um, uh, obsessed with the AIR lease form which I know that they use in the East Bay. What's your feeling about that form? What everyone always says to me is on the broker side, this will make everyone's life easier because it's a form that everyone knows. Yeah. yeah. And I find that that is never true, but no, you no, see but the AAR form used a lot still? Yes, a lot. Okay. So not with any of my institutional owners, they all have their 50 page right. institutional right. release. Right. And so the AIR is probably better than that, but uh, the AIR is used by everybody. Yeah. You know, sometimes we see some other ones when some brokers are a little more slanted towards residential, but they're doing an industrial deal, they bring one of those in. But uh, yeah, I think this, the other one's the CAR. Yeah. And that form is really dreadful. Yeah. The CAR so, form. I had to do a deal on that a while ago. I couldn't persuade the parties that. This, this was not a good form. And so I never used it before. And I was appalled by how bad it was. Yeah. So uh, AIR is used by, on the purchase side, on the lease side, by every non-institutional owner I work with. Yeah. 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 Do you have any particular bugaboos with it that you want to make sure are clear at the letter of intent stage? Or do you just leave it to no, when you negotiate it? I, yeah. I, I, I just, well... Depending on the condition of the building and things like that, and what side of the right. fence I'm on, but no, you know, there's I a just, lot of warranties in there. Yeah, there are a lot of warranties. And if you're the landlord, you may not, you know, industrials often as is, take it as is. I'm not warranting anything. 
And yeah. so you have to, you know, mark it up. Usually our warranty is we're going to deliver this in good working order as is. And, you know, that's it. And maybe maybe an attorney will add some language to the addendum to, to clarify that. But no, um, we've gotten a lot of mileage with the AIR and, and, and whether or not most of the attorneys we know are pretty comfortable with it. And it's the one the brokers know, so that's the one they push. Right, right, right. I mean, once you become familiar with it, whoever you are, it's, it, it goes pretty fast, but there's a lot of sort of people hours that go into working with that form just because yes. of the software and how awkward it is and yeah. whatever. Um, so thinking about the letter of intent stage, what are some of the worst mistakes that you see your clients make, whether landlord or tenant, at the letter of intent stage? Mm, now I got to think about that. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you mine when I represent landlords. Yeah. And, and don't mean to cast aspersions on brokers, but I have seen brokers do this many times. They just copy and paste the prior letter of intent that they did, and they don't really adjust it enough for the particular deal. And so don't, sometimes there's language you, in there from a prior you deal. charge, by the way, Your Honor. Uh, so yes, you're right. Um, I do a lot of that and, and you, 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 each deal is differently, uh, is different. Uh, like I handle a couple parks, so I have a template for each park. So I do right. place those and, um, um, but yeah, I, I, I will take a former template and, and try to recraft it. Uh, depending on whether it's a land deal, a building deal, a lease, sale. Uh, so what the, the, we talked about it briefly. On the landlord side, when, when, when we're in a lot of pain and we're in that recession, the biggest, the, the biggest mistake, and, and I've been on the receiving end of it, and when, when you can't buy or sniff a deal, you will do anything. So when a tenant hits you and it's the broker pushing it with that fixed option. Yeah. And, and at the time, the option rate, okay, this doesn't look so horrible. And then right. you realize that when a market takes off, at least generally here, when it gets going, it's increasing 10 to 20% a year. Right. And, and As opposed to the fixed option, which will be probably 3%. Oh my, well, the fixed option, which is, you know, potentially, you know, following the last month of the last year of the rent. So it, every time I've seen a fixed option, 100% of the time, it's been a disaster for the landlord. Oh, really? That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, so I, I would say, but again, if you're hemorrhaging, it's hard to be, think five right. years out. And the only thing I would throw out in that situation, if I, if, if I'm advising a landlord is, you know what, G give them an, one or two months more free rent, whatever it is, you need a it, fair market value option. Right. Adjustment. You need, to get, yeah. you need to get rid of this at any cost period. Right. Um, so that would be, that would be on the landlord side. Um, yeah. And I would say also giving options to buy when things are bad and you think, Hey, that price doesn't look so bad. Well, yeah, but in five years from now, when the market takes off, you'll right. you'll be giving a lot of money away. So 
you know, right. anything that's tied to five years down the road. Right. Uh, I would say um, at least longer than 10 years. Mm, interesting. Uh, because again, if you look, if in 09, we were all hemorrhaging. Well, and, yes. and so if you negotiated a 10-year deal from probably tw from probably 2010 on, the market was probably increasing close to 10%. Wow. Maybe, or, but, but from like 2015 on, it was going up 20% a year. Wow. So, so you That's really, a big chunk of change. You really lose ground when you, so I, I would say this, it's, you know, the time to do that long-term deal is when the market is really high, but just yeah. know that, you know, in the, each cycle, each low is, the low of the next cycle will be higher than the low of this one. And the right. high of the next cycle will be higher than whatever our market high is here. So you, you just, you know, you lock in 15 or 20 years, you're going to lose ground really fast, regardless right. of what cycle you lock that deal in at. So interesting. Uh, you talk about because there are certain, at least in retail, there are certain well-known national retailers who insist on this. Yeah. It always has to be fixed. And I'd always thought, well, it's kind of a gamble for both parties. But the way you're describing it is, no, it's always a win for the tenant, period. Well, and again, not very, I just know that, uh, you know, brokers, hey, brokers like 10-year deals and that's fine. But, but you will, you will lose ground. If you look at all the cycles and you, if you look at a 15-year deal uh, and you're locking them in, and you're locking them in at, you know, well, you take any deal you would have locked in at a low point, you know, right now we're getting three and a half to 4% annual increases. You know, if it was a low point, you'd probably be getting 2%. So yeah, the longer the term, yeah, you lose, usually lose ground. And I would say this, you know, as, as, as a tenant, when the market's really good, you know, maybe I don't want a 10 year deal versus if the market is soft, like it was in 09, like it was in the early 2000s, you know, that's probably when you want your longer deal. Right, right. Of course, and then some companies just have corporate mandates yeah. that for CapEx reasons, <laughs> they, they just need to have the 10-year deal locked in and there's other sure. motivating factors. Um, another issue I see at the letter of intent stage is the parties kind of punting the security deposit issue. So... If it's not a well-known credit-worthy company. To financials. Exactly. And yeah. I always feel like that's really poor uh, negotiating strategy on everybody's part because often then that doesn't happen until the 11th hour of lease negotiations, which is not when you're the landlord and you want to be saying, oh, I need one year of rent. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, you almost got the deal signed, except now you've put this giant boulder in the way. Nor when you're the tenant, do you want to suddenly be presented with that? Because that changes everything for you. If that's if that's a deal killer for the landlord, you didn't think you were going to have to pay that. That's yeah. huge. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I guess you, sh you should be able to have an idea, talking to the broker, doing a little Google research how strong or weak this company might be uh, to at least, you know, take a stab at the security deposit subject to review and approval of financials. Right. And, um, 
yeah. And you I, know your TI allowance outlay, right? Yeah. Which is the landlord's always looking to, to get that back. You yeah. know, your broker commission outlay. So you have some sense of what your initial outlay is. And then you add a few months of rent. Again, for a tenant that's not well-established or doesn't have a lot of money in the bank. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, absolutely agree. So, and I would, I would say normally we have the security deposit in there. Actually, I'm in the middle of one deal and the landlord did not want to do that. And they wanted to sort of get a better understanding. Uh, but generally, uh, I see that in there. Um, uh, I, so another, I guess another mistake would be, you know, start date. Uh, start date hey we put it out two months it seems like a plenty of time and then all of a sudden or you know, early occupancy start date all of a sudden the lease t takes you right up to that point you don't have time to actually set up with you know set up for the office or whatever you're going to do in the warehouse so leaving yourself adequate time so you're not paying full rent in there when you're not utilizing right. it right right or, you know, um, and, and this is what I often try to steer people to during lease negotiations, if there is a hard date, you know, X days from delivery, X days from full execution of lease, whatever. But because lease negotiations often take much longer than people anticipate. Sure. And, you know, people are very optimistic when they sign these letters of intent. And I feel, I feel like if you do that sort of earlier on in the first couple turns of the lease, um, you know, then you set expectations and people get off that, oh, well, February one, and this is really important. And unless it is really important and no one's going to change it, it just depends yeah. on the deal. Yeah. Agreed. You know, what are some other things that, um, like tenant improvement allowances sometimes, especially on renewals, when you allocate, let's just say 50 cents a foot for paint and carpet or, uh, and then the tenants in there and nobody wants to sort of move everything out to do that and then what happens okay it didn't get used and then you're battling over because now it's two years into it and you know, can we use this money to upgrade the bathrooms well that wasn't spelled out so you know spelling out on both sides how much time you have to spend the money right what the money's for right and then tenants tenants should realize hey if you're not going to use it for paint and carpet then make sure you you have it allocated for something else because a lot of tenants are renewing just don't want to inconvenience everybody. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, our time is almost up. So okay. I would like to conclude by um, asking any other thoughts you would share about just the whole industrial uh, leasing from the letter of intent stage lessons learned advice for younger brokers who maybe sure. don't have a lot of experience. Uh, so I think the best advice I would give is put it together, read it slowly, then try to go find someone in your office if you can, or send it to someone that you trust and can you know keep it confidential and have them read it. Because I can assure you, if I read the proposal, a uh, uh, letter of intent from a young broker, there are going to be major errors in it, right? Um, and and you know you you learn you learn by just doing. And so if you can get some seasoned veteran just to take a look at it, an office manager who's reviewed a ton of them, um, right. you know I've got I've got five attorneys probably that I work with actively. And if I, you know, 
not necessarily the LOI. I don't feel I need help there. But if I've got language on something, I can I can send it to someone and say, hey, can you just quickly just take a look at this and you know put a set of eyes on it? And yeah. I think a lot of people are happy to help out. You know, assuming it's yeah. not going to take them a half an hour. Yeah, I I think that in my experience, the commercial leasing world has become increasingly more collegial. And as people get to know each other over the years and many, many decades in some cases, yeah. um, it's it's much easier just to, especially me as a solo, to call up other colleagues and just ask for a second opinion. And it, it's, for me, a very nice community of people to work with. And, you know, if there's a young broker out there, uh, you know, reach out to some of the institutional uh, owners. You might not be listing or handling their product, but, you know, you might say, hey, I'm working on this small little deal. You do a lot of leases. Would you mind just taking a quick look at it? And, you know, I think a lot of older brokers, you know, would would enjoy helping out a, a younger yeah. agent for sure. Yeah, 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 I agree. Okay, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. This has been super great, Jay. Thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, Joanne. I, as always, learned learned something that I didn't know before. Hey, great talking to you. Great seeing you. And, and, and now I know that, uh, you know, hopefully you and I can connect a little more going forward, but uh, glad, that, glad that you're yeah. back here in California. Now that I know that that's fantastic. Yeah. All yeah. the best. And uh, also licensed in Nevada. Don't forget. I'm Joanne Woodson. Thanks for listening to the commercial leasing diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill. Podcast is produced and edited by Matthew Salanoa. The Commercial Leasing Diva podcast is sponsored in part by Commercial Leasing Law Seminars. If you want to learn more about commercial leasing, and why wouldn't you, please check out my e-courses by visiting my website, www.jleasinglaw.com. And right now we have three courses, two on the dreaded AIR lease form and drafting the addendum, and then a five-week course on commercial leasing basics, which takes a deep dive into letters of intent for commercial leases. Hope to see you in one of the classes. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.